Subscribe to The Spectator this summer and get the next 10 weeks of the magazine as well as unlimited access to our website and app for just £10. Not only that, we'll send you a bottle of Pims absolutely free, only while stocks last. So go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Pims to claim this offer now. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? A country's drinking culture says a lot about its people, its history and its culture. Britain has a pretty distinct drinking culture, as does America, and so does China. On this episode, we'll be taking a look at the role of drinking in Chinese history, literature and society, and asking why wine never quite took off. That is, until recently, as my guest Janet Z. Wang tells me. She is the author of the book The Chinese Wine Renaissance, and in it she talks about all the ways in which China's economic growth of the last few decades have reignited this love of grape wine. So Janet, welcome to the podcast. Before we start, I think we should just do some vocab because let's be clear about what we're talking when we say wine in this context. In Chinese, there is a word called jiu, which is an umbrella term for all sorts of alcohol, not just grape wine. So so what are we really talking about when we say wine? Yeah, so when we talk about wine in English or European language, I think people would automatically associate that with grape, right? Wine is made from grapes. But in Chinese, exactly like you said, jiu really is an umbrella term. So we talk about rice wine, we talk about beer even, pi jiu, you know, mi jiu, huang jiu, etc. So when I talk about Chinese wine, in my book, I am talking about grape wine in modern China, made in modern China. But when I talk about jiu in the more historical context, it could mean grape wine, it could mean rice wine, it could even mean distilled alcohol, you know, more like brandy or whiskey mm. type of thing, zhen liu jiu, mm. as we say in Chinese. Uh, so jiu is an umbrella term, but I think the, the word jiu has the cultural association that we attach to the word wine, mm. whereas alcohol, you know, yeah. doesn't have that cultural cachet attached to it. And is it such an umbrella term because there's so many varieties of things you could ferment into alcohol yeah, in absolutely. China? absolutely. And what's interesting is also that in recent years, I've found that the, the word wine in English has also started to broaden out. So if oh, you right. go to wine festivals, yeah. you have cider being represented, you have craft beer, <laughs> you know, you have, you know, of course they, they are called cider as opposed to wine, but you know, there's a movement called cider is wine, you know, because because wine, the word wine, does have the cultural yeah. aspect, which uh, is sort of slightly lacking in other terms like alcohol, cocktail, <laughs> you know. So I, I find that actually quite an interesting aspect when we talk about jiu or talk about wine, you know, in a cross-cultural context. Yeah. Uh, so what are we really talking about? Yeah. But I think it's trying to, for example, tell Western winemakers that actually China has an ancient wine culture. But by that, we probably mean more of the grain type of wine. But that is not to say that grape wine wasn't made yeah. for, for thousands of years in China. But uh, perhaps most people associate Chinese wine culture 
with grain-based wines. Yeah. Yeah. So when we say grain-based, we don't mean beer, we mean the sorghum. Yeah, sorghum, liang, huangjiu, yellow wine, uh-huh. I suppose, yeah. Is that more similar to like maybe Japanese sake? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Korea. absolutely. Because huangjiu is really the ancestor to sake and to soju in Japan and Korea. But they are perhaps more internationally yeah. known and more popular. Well, I want to ask yeah. you about that soon, actually. But mm. for now, can I ask you about the history of drinking in China? Because you write in your book how you got into this area because you were having such a classical education from your family. You read lots of poetry and lots of literature. Why does that lead you to drinking culture and wine culture. Yeah, sure. So, you know, my mother, I suppose, would be classified as a tiger mom. <laughs> so when I was little, I was essentially forced to <laughs> memorize a lot of Chinese poems. I think I had yeah, that too, exactly. but I've forgotten I them all. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I did remember when I was growing up trying to memorize these poems was, was that wine was a very frequently mentioned sort of subject in mm. a lot of these poems and whether the poet is trying to convey joy or sorrow parting or uniting somehow wine always features you know it, it seems to represent every human condition so I found that very fascinating despite the fact you know when I was sort of between the age of four to eleven I wasn't drinking much wine but that really stuck in my head yeah. you know as, can you give us some examples of how poets will be inspired by wine or drinking yeah so for example you know one of the very famous poem that mentions Putaojiu, you know Putaomeijiu Yeguangbei talking about a grapevine yeah talking about a soldier at the border you know guarding China's border and thinking about whether his fate would be to live or to die on the battlefield yet you know he's living for the moment and a sort of admiring the glistening grape wine in this beautiful glass right so that's very touching and then sort of during the same period in Tang Dynasty you have these soldiers on the frontiers of China protecting the borders and looking at the grape wine in the glass you have a lady young, Yang Guifei, you know living in the luxury of the palace also drinking grape wine from Taiyuan and dancing evocatively in the palace in the laps of luxury. You know, the contrast is very great. You know, one is of great joy and luxury, and one is about, well, not, not so, so much sorrow, but not knowing one's own fate, you know, in the frontier area where you can imagine the conditions are very, very difficult. Yeah. So the contrast is very great. Yeah. So one is great great joy and one is sort of uncertainty right yeah. so yeah I, I do like that sort of contrast and then you have poets who would write poems whilst drinking wine you know and admiring the moon you know sushi. and for them it was like an artistic form wasn't it to unleash yeah. that creativity yeah yeah to unleash the creativity you almost have to <laughs> get journal- drunk first I think journalists <laughs> would agree with that one yeah. <laughs> exactly and can we talk a little bit about drinking in more modern China Mm. so of course we're talking about Tang Dynasty and Han Dynasty and you in your book you mentioned lots about the vineyards that were developed there as well as as we talked about a sorghum based grain based alcohols but obviously China's been through such a turmoil in the last two centuries what impact did that have on traditional drinking and drinks throughout that two centuries 
So in more recent histories, for example, at the end of the Qing dynasty, you had greater influence from European merchants and, well, for the, I suppose, invaders, you could even say, right? Rather forceful (laughs) influence. (laughs) Yes, Uh, Western influence in China. So it brought a lot of wines from Europe that we would recognize to this day, right, today. And that was enjoyed by the sort of upper echelons of mm. societies who mingled with these expat communities. So at the end of Qing Dynasty, you'll find writings about champagne, you know, explaining what champagne was. And in fact, sparkling wine was even made in China um, mm. in the 19th century. And also what's interesting is towards the end of the Qing Dynasty, there was a movement to uh, modernize China, right? The attempt to modernize, it didn't really succeed. But one of the legacy of that was um, the founding of China's first industrialized winery, oh. uh, Changyu. And, uh, and that's, that's grape wine. Yes, it's yeah. grape wine. And that was the 1892, the first Chinese wine company was founded in Shandong province. And Changyu today, you know, is one of the top 10 global brands, in fact, and one of the largest in China. So that's a lasting legacy. So yeah, so grape wine was quite familiar, you yeah. know, already at the end of the Qing dynasty, but mostly the preserve of the elite class. And what about under the communists, when those elites didn't really exist anymore, other than being communist elites? Yeah, what's, what's quite interesting is that even I only found this out when I was researching for the book, is that actually there were a lot of grape cross-breeding and research programs that were going on even in the 1950s. Wow, is that state sanctioned? Yes, yes, yes. So there were uh, grape institutes um, around (laughs) China that studied research grape varieties. And because actually China is home to over half of the world's grapevine species. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But they tend to be wild or, you know, China is not a country that domesticated grape to Mm. a very large extent. But it does have a very diverse gene pool for grapevine species. So a lot of these research programs were going on since the 50s to find crossbreeds that uh, work well for colder climates in northern China. Right. right? Because one of the problems right now in Chinese vineyards in the north is that grapevine can't survive very severe cold and dry winter. So in the north, even to this day, uh, vines have to be covered by earth. They have to be buried to overwinter. Right. So one of the the study is to see if certain winter hardy varieties from northern China could be crossed mm. with European wine grapes uh, varieties, which are more aromatic and makes mm. more interesting wines. You know, if you can cross the winter hardy character with the aromatic features yeah. to produce wine. So that has been going on, and it's only recently that some of these are being starting to be commercialized. We're right. not even seeing much of the commercialization Gosh, that's a yet. long time in the making, that well, research. Y- yeah, because <laughs> not, not all of them are suitable for right. sort of uh, mass-scale commercialization. So why were, they, why were they researching it? Did Chairman Mao particularly well, like a drink? Or? Well, so Chairman Mao actually said, you know, wine is a cultural product and, you know, the people should be able to enjoy wine. So right. uh, Chairman Mao, well, everybody from all of... The, uh, every part yeah. of the political spectrum seems to find this common ground <laughs> where they all supported Changyu winery, Fair actually. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I think grape wine has always been, you know, 
a continuous um, culture in China. I thought you made a wonderful point in your book about how Japan and Korea may have preserved traditional drinking culture mm. much better because traditional ways of making these grain-based things yes. because they didn't go through the political turmoil that China did. Can you talk a little bit about that? I love yeah. the idea of going to Japan and Korea now and being able to drink something that was closer yes. to what yeah. people in the Ming Dynasty maybe drank. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have the same feeling that it's not that these traditional drinks have completely died out in China. That's not true. But they remain very regional and localized. And they are not very widely commercialized, especially not beyond China's borders. Whereas Korean, Japanese, sake... And, you know, sake, for example, have lots of different forms. They'd be yeah. unfiltered. You know, mm-hmm. you have the nigori sake, which is unfiltered, or you have sweeter sake. So that could be closer to what China was producing in vast quantities, you know, maybe a thousand years ago. But nowadays, the tastes have changed and evolved in China, whereas that type of artisanal winemaking have been better preserved in places like Japan and Korea. And they've made it their own, of course, Mm. you know, not to say they are still doing Chinese winemaking. They have made it their own. They have perfected the art and turned it into a sake culture or shoju culture. China somehow is now learning (laughs) from the success of the sake industry to see whether we can start to export some more traditional Chinese alcohols abroad. And that's very early stage yet. But I feel very optimistic about that because I think consumers these days are much more open-minded about Mm. trying new things. I also want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, more recent history, so in the last 20 years. Right. I think you and I are both children of reform Mm, and opening and it's completely shaped us. But in that naughty's China, there was a a stupid amount of money going Mm. around (laughs) when Chinese people were first starting to get rich. And you write about this 2010 Hong Kong Sotheby's auction. Mm. Can you tell us about that? Because my jaw just dropped. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think what was very interesting was, you know, Bordeaux has enjoyed a global reputation for for a very very long time you know and in a way you can argue it was the English the British they had a taste for claret and therefore made Bordeaux very famous because of the the trade between England and Bordeaux and then because of Hong Kong being a Mm. colony of Britain for over a century there were sort of interest in Hong Kong as well for Bordeaux wines so Bordeaux has established a fairly strong foothold in Hong Kong. Right. right. And then when the Chinese mainland became wealthy and that Hong Kong was returned to China, so therefore the interaction between Hong Kong and the mainland have increased and that propelled a lot of mainland Chinese to also aspire to this lifestyle of drinking, you know, very expensive French wines, right? In particular, at that time, it was Bordeaux who found favor first. And so during that period, you know, at the height of this craze, which peaked around 2010, a lot of mainland Chinese people were trying to create their cellar. But uh, you can imagine an English wine collector or a Hong Kong collector, they've spent a lifetime collecting <laughs> <laughs> wines for their cellar. Some rich mainland Chinese wanted to create their cellar, you know, in 
a week, <laughs> let's yeah, say. And right. they would go around and buying these expensive rare bottles at wow. auctions and they would just scoop it up as if, you know, they were just shopping at the supermarket, you know. So Bordeaux, they would come to Bordeaux, they would go to auction houses and buy up a, a lot of these rare wines. So that's what pushed the prices up. And also that particular auction, they auctioned wines directly from the seller of Lafitte, mm-hmm. right? As you may know, there's a lot of problems with fake wine as well in China. So the joke was there were more Lafitte in in China than Lafitte has ever produced (laughs) from (laughs) their own vineyard, right? So a sale directly from Lafitte's seller, uh, you know, the provenance was very good. So all these factors meant somehow the wines were perceived to be extremely desirable and rare yeah Yeah, so that's to the extent that one bottle was sold for two hundred and thirty four thousand dollars two hundred thirty four thousand (laughs) dollars it just blew everybody's mind including (laughs) the auction houses (laughs) oh my lord and you know as you've hinted at already at that point wine became a status symbol yeah a very sought after status symbol and Mm -hmm. you mentioned this ranking chart what's a ranking chart ah right okay so this again contributed to why Bordeaux was very popular because Bordeaux is famous for its 1855 classification system Uh, so Napoleon III when he during the Paris Expo he wanted the world to understand French wine easily with a classification system so you very quickly can identify the quality of certain wines so that 1850 classification has more or less stayed till this day so initially in the days when Chinese people were gifting each other Bordeaux wines it was an easy reference (laughs) for people who don't really understand wine (laughs) to know what they're receiving you know oh I got a first class growth therefore I must be you know considered quite important (laughs) do they even (laughs) enjoy that wine or is it more like the thought that I think it's the thought yeah yeah Yeah. because Bordeaux wine when they are young can be quite tannic you know and that's not usually a profile that people like in China. You know, they say it's very bitter, tannic. Like, you know, when you drink very strong tea, yeah. you get this yeah. sucking feeling around your jaw, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but because Bordeaux has this classification system, everybody, you know, the giver of the gift and the receiver yeah. of the gift can refer to the same <laughs> chart and no, take note of how much face is being given and received, you know. So <laughs> it, was a, it was a very convenient system. I was just going to ask, do you think that the Chinese palate then or now has developed to enjoy grape wine more than the classic, you know, Baijiu, the classic Sogum wine? I think the Chinese palate have always been a fairly sophisticated one, underpinned by our rich food culture. You know, Mm. China has a very diverse and rich food culture. And because when we're eating at a banquet, you have lots of different dishes, right? So sometimes certain wines, you know, grape wines, for example, slightly sweeter or slightly acidic wine would balance out grease Mm -hmm. uh, or spices so there are certain wines which have a better affinity perhaps with Chinese food as well so there are all these different considerations that Chinese people are starting to incorporate into their own eating culture (laughs) interesting yeah Yeah. well let's talk a little bit about drinking culture as well because there are a few facets of drinking culture that as someone who I mean as you are as well you know lived 
in China for a long time, but also in the UK for a long time, there's a lot of comparisons that I find quite amusing. So, for example, in China, Ganbei, you know, the kind of, you call it the bottoms up philosophy, which yeah. I like a lot. You know, at a dinner table, you might say Ganbei, and then you just down the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? I, know. <laughs> I I wish it wasn't so. <laughs> but I think that actually, unfortunately, came from the Baijiu culture, which um, I suppose first started to become fashionable during the Yuan Dynasty. Because Yuan Dynasty, as you know, is a Mongol-ruled mm. uh, dynasty. So people from the steppes, you know, from the Western region, they lived on horseback, they are nomadic, they drink a lot. So they have great capacity to drink and that also coincided with the time when distillation technology became more widespread so alcohol started to get higher in alcohol level because of distillation right so the combination of distilled liquor becoming popular and the yuan ruling class being able to drink a lot meant that drinking became a bit of a contest right because right. before yuan if you think about how historically before yuan dynasty people drank but they wanted to last quite a long time <laughs> you know they want to get inebriated in order to be creative, to write poems, right. for example, right? Or to compose calligraphy. So art and culture was very tied to drinking culture. But since the Yuan Dynasty, I think drinking culture became more macho yeah. and became a contest to show generosity, yeah. hospitality, but also it's a way of showing power, right? Yeah. You know, And that sort of persisted to the point that now even when we are switching between baijiu and grape wine grape wine is not meant to be oh, down in one but because of that baijiu you know served in smaller cups shots, yeah. yeah shots so you can down a shot but when it's transferred to grape wine, they've kept the downing in one habit. And especially if it's expensive Bordeaux. It, yeah, it, it's terrible. I hope this is just a, a phase. <laughs> and yeah, it's funny that you talk about that competition because on a previous episode of Chinese Whispers, I was talking to Dylan Levi King about drug abuse in China oh, okay. and we got onto the t- topic yeah. of drinking culture. Mm-mm. And he was saying how, you know, for women, you know, mm. you might say, oh, no, no more for me. And then a man will come oh, valiantly. Yes. Come, very <laughs> chivalrous. Yeah, very chivalrous. <laughs> oh, do the, oh, down this one for yes, you. Yes. But recently I've noticed ladies also wanting to right. show the men that they can drink, you know, because, you know, in, in Chinese society, you know, a lot of women do aspire and rise to fairly high positions in their career you know there are lots of women CEOs there are lots of women's entrepreneurs and they're doing great and when they're going out they want to show their male colleagues <laughs> that you know they can equally right. hold a drink yeah it, it's a bit of a power play somehow yeah. you know when it comes to that sort of drinking but it's not a culture that I personally no. enjoy or I like to see at all. Um, I, I'm trying to push the idea that enjoying grape wine should be compared to our tea culture, <laughs> you know, where it's more contemplative, yeah. <laughs> sipping, uh, yeah, sipping, more, more like yeah, yeah, ping, ping cha, yeah, to savor, you know, to savor something, to observe its yeah. look and aromatic and uh, the taste profile, you know, to 
be more contemplative. <laughs> I hope Good luck that with would that work. One. <laughs> <laughs> and I also want to bring in this other facet of uh, jingjiu, you know, this mm, pay, uh, yes. giving a toast to someone. Yes, yes. If you're on, around a Chinese dinner table, yes. people will periodically say, like, woman jingjiu, let's toast the gram- toast grandma. Or yes. And everyone around the table will toast everyone yeah, else. Yes. What's, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a very interesting phenomenon and it has very ancient historical roots. I suppose dating back to sort of the even pre-Joe dynasty. So we're talking about second millennia sort of BC type of period when wine was a very precious commodity and it was made to pay respect to ancestors and gods, right? So it, so wine was initially made as a tribute to heaven and to ancestors. And only after that tribute is made, then you can drink a little bit, right? Mm. So, And Confucius especially promoted this concept that wine should first be used as tribute before it's drunk by humans. And I think the emphasis on ritual, you know, so toasting came from the Confucian school of thought that you first pay respect to heaven, earth, and elders, right? So that's three toasts before you can relax and yeah. drink socially. And I think that has perpetuated to this day. So we often still do three toasts, mm. right? Three rounds of toasting. And after three rounds, then everybody can relax and drink. <laughs> well, it sometimes feels like musical chairs when you haven't yeah, seen relatives yeah. for a long time. Yes, and people yes. are standing up all the time yeah, sitting yeah. down. <laughs> I think that's a corruption of Confucian rituals. <laughs> Maybe it's revealing a lot about my family. (laughs) I also want to ask you about drinking and eating. And actually, at this point, I should apologise to listeners if you can hear some light drilling, uh, the spectators having some renovations done. On eating and drinking, if you go out of this office, thank you for coming into the spectator office, if you go out onto this office, go around the corner to the two-chairman pub at about five o'clock, there will be people Mm. standing on the streets just drinking without eating and just drinking, you know, standing up. Mm. Two aspects there, standing up and drinking and also not eating while drinking. I mean, that's not very Chinese, is it? That's not very Chinese at all. And it's our concept in Chinese medicine and well-being that you should never drink on an empty stomach. And I think actually one interesting aspect of wine culture in China is that it's very closely linked with Chinese medicine and Mm. well-being. You know, if you look at the ancient character for yi, i.e. medicine, you'll see the bottom part of the character actually means wine, right? So to cure actually meant to cure with wine, you know, (laughs) because wine was historically a carrier for medicinal ingredients. Mm. So a lot of medicine were either infused in wine as a carrier or wine is actually an ingredient, you know, fermenting with medicinal quality to make a medicinal wine was um, how ancient Chinese remedies were made, right? So wine have always had this very tight link with Chinese medicine. To, even to this day, a lot of Western merchants would say, what is it that Chinese people buy wine for health reasons? You, right. know, you know, a lot of consumers will ask me, oh, is this wine good for health? <laughs> you know, and they find it a rather strange question. You know, it's not something that Western right. customers would ask. But in China, it's a very important aspect. Yeah. So this drinking on empty stomach goes 
very against, <laughs> very much against the, this health and well-being angle. So that's something that we don't really do in China. So that's why wine and food is still so important, and profiles of wine that go with food is important. Yeah. So you see that Chinese wine producers, when they make wine in China, they very much have that at the forefront of their thought, which is, is the wine good with food? <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. Well, I've had um, conversations, interviews mm. with Chinese students who mm. are in the UK. Yeah. And one of the reasons they find it hard to integrate is the pub culture. Right. Because they just yeah. Can't, yeah. can't get their heads around, you know, yeah. just yeah. Drinking, <laughs> drinking without yes. food, drinking for the sake of drinking. Yeah. And yeah, they find it culturally quite mm. hard to yes. access that. Yeah. And yeah, I absolutely can appreciate that. And also the binge drinking is slightly mm. strange as well because we very much have this concept that it's not just for decorum you know Confucius says you shouldn't drink to the point that you cannot control yourself but also just uh, getting drunk for the sake of it is bad for your health you know drinking until you <laughs> yeah. take leave of your senses yeah. is bad for your health as well so yeah, so that's yeah. very... Well, Jenna, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I just have one last question for you. <laughs> now, you very kindly have brought me a bottle of Chinese wine. It's called yes. Rongzi. Yes. It's a Pinot Noir. Yes. And tell, tell us about this wine. So what, what do we need to know about it? <laughs> <laughs> so this wine I, I really like because Pinot Noir, as you may know, is a very delicate, difficult grape to grow anywhere in the world. Did not know that. <laughs> so making Pinot Noir in China is not a small feat at all. So this Pinot Noir, I think, is interesting because it's grown on the Lowe's Plateau soil in Shanxi province. And China, as you know, has the largest Lowe's Plateau in the world. Right? And this is a high, quite fairly high altitude. Right. And the, the terroir is interesting. I think for me, Chinese wine can only be interesting for the international audience if it tells something of its own mm. special land mm. and where it comes from. And this wine, I think, tells the story of the Lowe's Plateau terroir. And it's a delicate grape. <laughs> and it because a delicate grape will show off the winemaker's ability. Right. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy oh, it. I'm very much looking forward to it. And where can uh, someone who, you know, have, has been wanting to drink more baijiu, you know, just with food and stuff, find it very difficult to find that stuff in British supermarkets? Is mm. it just mainly online that you can find Chinese-produced alcohols? or Well, baijiu, I think, yes, it's still yeah. fairly specialised. Yeah. Um, but I think certain, some shops and hotels in London are starting to to stock baijiu. Like Harrods, right. I think, has, oh, a, has a baijiu oh, yeah. counter. <laughs> and some hotels in London are serving baijiu cocktails. Okay. But funnily enough, I, I heard someone was telling me, if you order a baijiu cocktail, they ask you, have you ever had baijiu? And if you say no, they, they will say, well, they, they won't sell it to you. <laughs> Because they they are afraid that you won't like the taste of baijiu, so that's very interesting. But a putaojiu, i.e., grape wine, you can now if you really look hard, you can find them in some specialist wine shops. Um, and Ocado actually stocks. Uh, well, there we go. Uh, <laughs> the brand Changyu Moser Fifteen is stocked in Ocado, and there are some being sold by the glass in various London restaurants now. But you have to look for them. Okay, all right, <laughs> brilliant. Well, I'm sure listeners will after this podcast because I'm. I know about you I'm feeling quite thirsty <laughs> <laughs> Janet Wan thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers thank you Cindy thank you
Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast@spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening, and join us again next time. Bye.